there's this other specific person who I was resentful at, and I can't even remember the details of all of it, but (laughs) I wanted to literally murder her. So what happened through that resentment is her and I would act like the other one didn't exist in a room. And what I realized is that's such an MO for me. Like, if you hurt me or I become resentful at you for years when I was drinking for sure. And even in early recovery, you no longer existed. You're dead to me. And and you can be standing right there in the same circle of people talking and I will act like you physically don't exist. And that to me today is like the worst behavior ever. Right. Um, Cause that's not how I act as a sober person. Like even if I'm not fond of somebody, I acknowledge every human being like God gave me this ability to connect. And that girl that I was so resentful out, the funny thing is she became one of my best friends, right? (laughs) I heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. What's going on, Don? What you been up to? Well, I went to a wedding recently, and I never once thought about drinking. I mean, at least I didn't want to drink. I thought about drinking. I noticed the people who were drinking, and I noticed Mm -hmm. the people who weren't. But I've been sober for a while. It wasn't that easy at first. God, it used to be I would want to drink in a situation like this. Do you remember that when you got sober, going to the first social situation where drinking was kind of a part of it? I do. First of all, I totally was aware that I used alcohol as that social lubricant for me to feel comfortable in a social situation. But the the thing that surprised me was how many people didn't drink. I never saw them. They did not exist. That's true. (laughs) And then I remember I went to a drinking party and I was standing outside talking with a group of guys. And one guy was sipping from one of those little airplane bottles of liquor. Uh First of all, sipping from a little airplane. That's just weird to begin with. But then he was like, I'm done. And he poured it out standing right there. An airplane bottle. I mean, that's, that's not even a swallow. Oh no, I'm starting to feel it. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, that happened nearly 20 years ago and it stands out in my mind still. How do you handle not drinking when you first got sober to go to a situation like a wedding? Well, one of the things that I did was I shared about it in my home group that I was doing this thing, right? Because I'm new and I'm, I'm nervous and people made suggestions. A strong one was have your own transportation. Yes. Have your escape plan, if you will. Be able to leave at a moment's notice. Yeah. In fact, I was told, don't even let your car get blocked in. Yeah. And then the other thing was be willing to just leave. Yes. No goodbyes, no nothing. If you need to walk out that door, do it. Yeah. And then the third thing was to you know pray and check in with a sponsor yes. um, before I go to see where am I with this? Yeah. What's my spiritual condition right now? I've heard that called bookending. Yes. Check in after two. Yes. You make an appointment that you're going to call before and you're going to call after. 
And one more thing was look to see where I could be helpful. And yes. instead of going to the wedding, being all about me trying to survive, not drinking, see where I can help. And there were places I could help every time I'm in a situation like that, including this last wedding that I went to. Yeah. What's happening today, Sam? Well, today we're having coffee with Jennifer D. in Wilmington, North Carolina. What? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like your accent there. <laughs> North Carolina. Nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, today okay. we're having coffee with Jennifer D. in Wilmington, North Carolina. And later she will be answering a question from Bill in Kingsville, Missouri, who called in. You can call in with a question or recovery-related joke at 212-870-3418. And please do call. We need more questions. You don't need to be new. You can call with anything that you struggled with or questions newcomers have asked you. 212-870-3418. And you can go to aagrapevine.org slash podcast to find that number. But now, let's get to know Jennifer a bit. Grapevine does not accept donations, but you can offer your support by making a purchase at store.aagrapevine.org or by the Carry the Message gift certificates to sponsor Grapevine subscriptions for alcoholics in need. That's store.aagrapevine.org. Hey guys, Jennifer from uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got to leave that in there now. <laughs> Oh how, long have, how long have you been living in North Carolina? I've been here <laughs> since 1995. Well, tell us what's your sobriety date, home group and stuff. January 12th, 1992 is my sobriety date. And my home group is the Midtown Group. I had the privilege of serving as a delegate to the General Service Conference in 2011, 2012. I am a Panel 61 past delegate. I only understood this recently, what this panel stuff was. For somebody who doesn't know, what does that mean? So that means our first general service conference that was held was panel one. And the following year, it was panel two. So I was the 61st panel that existed in Alcoholics Anonymous for our general service conference, which is the meeting where we conduct our business and we decide what's best for Alcoholics Anonymous, essentially. Yeah. So the panel is every year there's a different delegates. Yep. So your first year is your delegate panel, even though I served panel 61 and panel 62, because panel 61 is my first year of being a delegate. That's the panel number that I'm referred to as. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So half the delegates are new and half the delegates are seasoned. So there's always brand new delegates and half delegates there for their second year. Obviously, you didn't start at the area level. How did this happen to you? How was this done to you? <laughs> I had a crush on a boy. That's what happened. It's I always, had a, crush it's on always a, boy. a boy. It's always a boy. And he told me that Alcoholics Anonymous needed the young female GSRs. So off I went to be the best GSR that's ever existed. And a GSR is a general service rep. What happened, I was super active in young people's service 
with conferences and we started a young people's group in Wilmington and 95 when I moved to North Carolina. Hooray for making it attractive, right? Hey, you don't have to have good motives in Alcoholics Anonymous. As long as you show up and do the work, miracles happen. It's amazing, right? <laughs> well, anybody can be a GSR. So for people listening, if you have a home group that doesn't have a general service representative, volunteer for it and find out where your district meets and go to the meetings. Absolutely. My first time being a GSR was in early recovery. I was 90 days sober. And the home group that I belong to, they appointed me GSR. And they said it was the most important position in AA. So I was really excited because my ego had somewhat returned in about 90 days. And they know it made who me feel a part of. <laughs> exactly. It made me feel a part of. So it served its purpose. But the problem is I never went to any meetings because I was terrified. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't want to go to the meetings. I never did anything. I was the worst GSR ever. So I made up later on. And that happens. So what got you into Alcoholics Anonymous? What was going on? Alcohol had stopped working and the pain of life was crushing my soul. Alcohol had stopped working probably in the last month that I was drinking. And just that over day after day after day, the mounting up of fear, anxiety and hurt and alcohol was not numbing that. I got to this place where I knew the world would be better off without me. And I didn't ask to get sober. I said a prayer that night. Um, and I said, if there is anything out there and I didn't believe in God, but I, I, I was at the point of which I was willing to pray. And that prayer wasn't for help. That prayer was, if there's anything out there, please don't let me wake up tomorrow morning. Cause I knew the world would be better off. And I knew that I needed relief and that I couldn't continue to go on living the way that I was living. And that next morning, a girl called me that I'd been in rehab with, of course, you know, I was still in the same amount of pain I'd been in the night before. And she asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was the last place I wanted to go. I really didn't even think I had a problem with alcohol. I thought there was something innately wrong with me that I was broken and that, I just needed to go away. And for whatever reason, I agreed to go to this meeting with her. And that was January 12th of 92. And why did you go to rehab? Why was I in rehab before? Oh, because yeah. everybody else thought that I had a problem. And what I learned when I was in rehab is that drugs are bad. Just say no. But there's no way that alcohol has control over me because I meant to get drunk every time that I drank. So I'm not powerless, you know? Mm -hmm. It was an intentional thing. It was. It's very intentional. So you decided that you would not have any drugs, but you would just use alcohol. And then it became clear that alcohol was a problem. So the rationalization of the alcoholic is that I could understand that drugs are illegal. It made sense to me. Just say no. I don't know where in my mind that I thought it was legal for a 13 year old to drink their face off every single day, but somehow that's justified because it was so sociably acceptable. Mm -hmm. So I, I got drunk with everybody I was in rehab with when I left that rehab at 13, by the time I made it to Alcoholics Anonymous that next year, I was doing any substance that would change the way that I felt. So those, none of those rules ever worked for me very well. How old were you when you were ready to end it all? It was six days before my 15th birthday. So I was 14. And that's when you went to AA? Yes. Had you been to AA before? In treatment. Yeah, they made us go. 
Were those meetings young people meetings? No. The funny thing is I didn't attend any young people's meetings until I was three and a half years sober. I'm going to guess that you were probably the youngest person in the room. For forever. And even when I went to young people's at three and a half years, I was still always the youngest. I was always the baby. So did that have any effect on you and feeling different from the people around you? I would think, yeah. So I think in the beginning, I kind of use that as like, because nobody wants to admit that they're alcoholic, right? I didn't at least. I mean, maybe some of y'all were excited, but my experience is I did not want that to be the problem, right? Like I needed, I was willing to do anything anybody suggested because I was in so much pain, but I had these reservations that would continue to pop up and I would hear people share and I would try to identify. I mean, I looked nothing like my first meeting was a bunch of senior citizens that were on their way to death and had been sober since dirt, you know, like I had nothing in common with them. So Don, like me. (laughs) So like half my head was shaved. I wore combat boots. I was an unlovely creature, like black eyes and black lips. You know, I was hardcore punk rock girl and, violent and angry. And I had nothing in common with them on the exterior, but I was so broken and they were so kind. And I remember going home going, why do these old men keep saying that they love me? Like in my world, there was a cost for everything. And, you know, I just thought like, there's a charge or say there's some angle, like what's the angle, but I kept coming back and it was for free and for fun. Right. Like nobody ever did anything inappropriate. Nobody ever asked me for money. And the attractiveness of this unselfish acts of these people that didn't know me, but genuinely loved me without knowing me. And I I just didn't understand any of it in the beginning, but I was in enough suffering and pain that I was able to keep coming back to get into the book and to identify the fact that yeah, I'm one of you people. And I identified with some of those feelings when they would talk about fear and isolation. And yes, I identified with all of that. But when they would talk about DUIs in my head, I'm thinking I didn't get a DUI. And they informed me I didn't have a car or a driver's license. So they were very helpful in that respect that I couldn't have gotten a DUI. (laughs) So that, that takes me right to a question that I had. Young people was a home group of mine. People who come into this program so young have not had a lot of time in their life to gain things to lose. Absolutely. Was that an obstacle for you in relating to these people with so much more life experience than you? So I think in the first 90 days, I was so broken that I I just needed relief. I mean, I... I felt like the pain of the world was literally the pain was going to kill me. I I was just crushed. I had no self-esteem. I had no dignity. I mean, I was at zero. My ego was even leveled, right? So I'm just crawling in. But what happens is you start getting better in Alcoholics Anonymous. So by 90 days, my ego started to return. And I started to have these reservations like that didn't happen and this didn't happen. And, you know, they're rummaging around in my head and I didn't necessarily talk about them right away, but I'll tell you a a real miracle happened. And and one of the things that old timers said when I first got sober is some people die so that others can stay sober. And I remember thinking that's such a cruel and weird thing to say, but it became my experience because when I was six months sober, I came home from school and my favorite uncle, who was the cool guy with the Harley Davidson Helm and my aunt had gotten in a fight. And when she came out of the bedroom, the phone book was opened up to 
treatment centers. So she thought he had checked himself into rehab. And a week later, she sent people looking for him and they found him behind the house and he'd shot himself with a shotgun. And I will tell you that I had started the steps and I had started this work, but my alcoholism was defined that day in a way that nothing else could have defined it because we're sitting at the kitchen table. And I remember it like it was yesterday, this conversation that was occurring where somehow my family becomes like, they never even took us to church, but all of a sudden they become moral prophets or something. And they're talking about how, when you take your own life, you're going to go to hell because that's a, a mortal sin or whatever. And I'm like, and the clearest thought came to my head. I said to myself, he didn't die from suicide. He died from alcoholism because I knew how he felt when he pulled the trigger. And had I had a shotgun, that's exactly what would have happened for me. And my bottom was really about this place that death seems like the only solution. And I don't believe we were created to destruct ourselves. And, and, and the fact that no matter what, if I pick up a drink, I know I will get to this place that suicide's the only answer for me. I may not get a DUI. I may not die of cirrhosis of the liver, but no matter what, I will always go to a place that suicide seems like the only solution to my life. And that's, you know, that defined my alcoholism in a way that nothing else could. I, you know, I share about him a lot because I feel that it was such a pivotal moment in my sobriety because it was this understanding like, oh, they talk about this 24 hours a day. This is about a commitment for the rest of my life because if I do not do this stuff, I am going to die. And it just became very real for me because I understood it in such magnitude by his death. Wow. That's an incredible story. For me, the longer that I stay sober, the more alcoholic I know that I am, right? Like my alcoholism can kill me today just as it could when I came in here with liquor in my body, right? Like I believe my disease, my illness is in my mind and in my body, like remove alcohol. It's not in my body anymore, but my mind is affected. And in our literature, it says resentment is the number one offender and and how true that is. I mean, I went to a meeting one night, probably 10 years ago, you know, double digit sobriety. I mean, work in the steps, active in service. And my friend didn't greet me the way that I think I should be greeted, which is, oh my God, it's so good to see you. Like you haven't seen me in 20 years. And, you know, in my head, I start thinking like, what happened? You know, did I do something? Man, by the time I was leaving that meeting, I was not going to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous at all because, she shouldn't have snubbed me. It goes from this place of like making sure I didn't do anything wrong and then blaming this person. And it had nothing to do with me. My selfishness and self-centeredness is it can be still be very powerful. How quickly after that situation happened, were you aware of the stinking thinking? Oh, I called my sponsor either that night or the next morning. And, you know, I'm used to these sponsors who like, if you don't want to punch your sponsor, get a new one because the ones that you want to punch <laughs> were great. I love that. It's true. (laughs) And she's like, well, write inventory on it. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, so I write this inventory, I read it to her. And she said, have you thought about just having an adult conversation and talking to your friend to find out what's going on? And you know, what a novel idea, but I don't know how to do these things. Right. And so I have a conversation with my friend and bam, she had a bad day. Her and her fiance got in a fight. It had nothing to do with me. Right. And, and the realization of how funny, because my sponsor, of course, then laughs at me 
for being so dramatic and so extra about everything. But that's part of my disease, mm-hmm. you know. Where did you get sober? Because it wasn't in Wilmington. No, in Texas, Arlington, Texas, right outside of Dallas. I moved when I was three and a half years sober. Was that hard? Oh, yeah. I mean, AA here was terrible. I'm sure. (laughs) They didn't know how to do it. You know, the old timers were not real old timers. They were just terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> and you, and you real and that's why you became a delegate. So you could completely change AA in North Carolina, <laughs> right? Make you it know right. What's funny is like, I didn't ever do service in the first three and a half. Years. I mean, I did like, I mean, I remember the first time I talked to a new person and it was just this life kind of altering. Service. Yeah. But I mean, my GSR thing, I never went to a meeting, but when I moved here, it was service that got me back into going to meetings on a regular basis. Cause I was going to meetings here and I was like, these people are terrible. Like, and I was just sitting in the back of the room, judging everybody. And I mean, I was like, this is not how AA is supposed to be. And I went and heard a speaker and it was Tom. I, right. And he talked about personal responsibility. He talked about his love for AA and and he said, you know, when I'm in a meeting and I'm not hearing the message I need to hear, I have a personal responsibility to give back what was so freely given to me. And it was like a dagger in the soul. I was like, Oh my God, he is. And I also had never met anyone who got sober and had stayed sober that long. I knew that even though he was 24 when he got sober back in his day, that was like being 10, you know, I mean, yeah. And so I went up and I talked to him after the meeting and I was just like blown away and and had a great conversation. He became one of my people, you know, and. um, Wow. I only heard him speak a couple of times. Oh, he's incredible. And so I thought, you know what? We went to conferences and stuff in in Texas. So I'm going to go to a conference and it was a young people's conference and we formed a committee of other people from Wilmington who I didn't really know. I'd never been to young people's before. I'd never met the people that were at this conference and we formed a committee. And in 24 hours, we went to Kinko's, we put together a bid package and they awarded the conference to us. And we went back and, and we had to put this conference on. So, you know, that's how I got involved in service. Well, Jennifer, stick around. We've got a question for you. It's time for Ask the Old Timer. Got a question for an old timer? Call in and record it at 212-870-3418 or email it to podcast at aagrapevine.org. You can find these and more at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. And now let's ask the old timer. Yes, this is still Bill from Kingsville, Missouri. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I want to know, how much time do you have to have to be an old-timer? I've got 31 years, and this guy with seven years was calling me an old-timer. I said, you're an old-timer. Okay, if you got six months, one year is an old-timer. you got a year, 10 years is an old-timer. What's the number? Thanks. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for your question. It's funny thinking about that question initially, I think, well, 30 years is an old timer, right? Because I remember when I came in, all my old guys, they were all 30 plus years sober, which like older than dirt. Like, I mean, I just didn't even understand that concept. But the funny thing is my experience of what I was told when I came to AA from those old timers was they would ask me, Jennifer, what time did you wake up this morning? And I'd be like, well, I got up at six o'clock, you know, to go to school or whatever. And they said, 
oh, I didn't wake up till eight. You've been sober longer than me. So that was always their response to we only have 24 hours. Right. And I'll tell you that like that 24 hours was so important in early recovery and just like counting those hours. Cause sometimes it was like, get through the next 30 minutes. And, but then as, as I got sober a little bit longer, I realized it's not about the 24 hours. It really is about this commitment to myself and my sobriety is that to drink is to die, you know, just kind of what we were talking about before, you know, that mentality, I think changed for me at around six, seven months sobriety of it, not just being about the 24 hours, but there's days in my sobriety now that, I mean, Saturday was one of them. I had this party I was throwing for a sponsee and I was like, I told this other sponsee, I've just got to get through the next 24 hours because it's like, I have so much to do. And I'm thinking, Oh, I just got to get through this 20 in, you know, a totally different context, not about not picking up a drink, but I use that in so many different at the gym. I'm like, I can do anything for two minutes. Right. Like this concept of time and what that means, you know, in my mind, 30 years was always an old timer because when I got sober, all my guys had 30, 36. I mean, time frames that I just thought weren't even real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because I watch new people come in today. And when they ask me, how long have you been sober? I'm almost embarrassed to tell them not embarrassed, but like, I don't want to tell them because when I tell them, Hey, they're going to be like, she's lying because that's what I thought about all those people. Right? Like there's no way you can stay sober that long. And it's so not identifiable for the new person. And I always have someone with a year or nine months or six months that I grab and say, she's been sober for six months because it is, it's so the, the importance of our time, I think really matters earlier in sobriety than it does as we continue to stay along. And as we continue to stay sober, I feel like, you know, in young people's I've been an old timer for a long time. <laughs> right. Uh, there's a lot more younger sobriety because it's younger people. Right. Mm-hmm at a young people's meeting, they're like, Oh my God, she's got 30 years or she's got 20 years or she's got 10 years. And and most of the people had like a year or five years. Right. It's always weird being referred to as an old timer. I feel like, and I think as a young person, part of that has to do with age as well. Cause I'm like, I'm not that old. I, I am not, don't, don't use any word old and me together. Right. <laughs> yes. um, well, that's, that's one of the things that react. It depends on where it is from the person who's looking at someone who has long-term sobriety and they don't, well, then those years are a sign of wisdom and a sign of experience and a sign that it works. Absolutely. And for someone who has a long time, well, there's the element of don't call me old. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's a potential of calling them long timers. There could be long timers or recovery veteran, but (laughs) 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 But there's also the element uh, with longer time. I don't want to say how long I've been sober in a way that is prideful. Because I realize I'm really only sober from when I woke up this morning. It's today, no matter how long I've been sober. So for that aspect, that's the case. But if I'm talking to a newcomer who wants experience, well, then my lived experience is valuable. And that's what I have to offer. So there's so many aspects to it. And it depends on where you're coming at it. The term old-timer 
it's too bad that it has that negative connotation because it's really wisdom. Well, and the funny thing is when I got sober, all of my guys, I'd be like, oh, my God, you've been sober longer than I've been alive. Right. And they would say their sobriety dates. And I did that for years and years and years. Well, now I'm 45 years old. And my sponsees, they did a big celebration for me for my anniversary in January. And all of the young people got up and they said what was happening to them the year that I got sober. And 90 percent of them had not been born. I think one was a toddler. And I was like, I hate you people. Right. Like it's (laughs) but it's like. I got repaid for my old timers for all the things that I would say to them, not thinking about how that probably made them feel. But now I get to experience it. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love that. Well, Jennifer, this has been great today. Thanks for joining us and and sharing your old timer experience. (laughs) Jennifer, indeed. Thank you so much. And Bill, thanks for calling in that question. And folks, once again, if you want to uh, call in a question or a joke for us, go to aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Thank you guys so much. Hey, Sam, can you get that? It's the listener feedback phone. Uh, 212-870-3418. Yeah, hang on. I'll get it. Hello? Hey, guys, I'm Dave, and I'm an alcoholic from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And I recently heard you guys talking about dated historical references in the big book such as Womley's Clapboard Factory and the Langley Flying Machine. I don't know anything about the Clapboard Factory, but I just recently saw the Flying Machine at the Air and Space Museum just outside of Washington, D.C. Anyway, it reminded me of another of my favorite phrases in the big book that puzzled me for some time. In the chapter To Wives, it lists a whole bunch of awful things that alcoholics do in their drinking, including ripping the keys out of pianos. And for years, I just thought, why would somebody destroy such a beautiful instrument? Until one day I was listening to something that talked about how pianos back then had keys that were made of ivory. So it seems that an alcoholic who needed a drink might have sold the valuable ivory keys to be able to afford their next bottle. Just wanted to share that. Thanks for the wonderful podcast. Wow. I've always figured that was just an over-the-top metaphor, but selling valuable piano keys makes a lot of sense. Everyone was desperate for money back then. The Great Depression was from 1929 to 1939, and Bill W. was writing the big book in 38, I guess. Yeah, it was published in 39. Thanks for calling, Dave. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Hey, Sam, can you get that? It's the listener feedback phone. Uh, 212-870-3418. Yeah, hang on. I'll get it. Hello? Yeah, my name is Ron R. I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska, and I'm celebrating 20 years of sobriety today, and I've been listening to the podcast ever since it started. It's a great benefit to my keeping connected with Alcoholics Anonymous. And thanks to the program, I've reached this milestone in my sobriety. And keep up the good work, guys. Bye. Ron, congratulations, 20 years. It's no longer a theory.
Thank you so much for calling in, Ron. Thanks, Ron. I'm at the very wit's end. Cuckoo. How do you know when you're too drunk to drive? When the tree you swear is in your way turns out to be the air freshener on your rear view mirror. <laughs> it's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.